0: Season 2 of Picard opens with the same mind-numbing tediousness Hollywood has seen fit to clone across any and all franchises. Once cherished by America of ages past, Modernization begins with what is known as The Hook. Normally it's something blowing up. Batman Begins, for instance, had this with an awful lot of gunpowder going off for absolutely no conceivable reason whatsoever within the first few minutes. And uh, sadly, Picard continues this brand new tradition with some security officers aboard a Federation starship being knocked about by exploding walls, with any momentary respite being offered by a turbo lift and a pleasant DING! That signifying the end of their journey. Normally, turbolifts don't need to politely remind their quarry that they've arrived at their destination. The doors opening is normally a pretty decent indicator of that. Anyway, the original red alert insignia is an- it's a nice touch, but the ship's fucked anyway, and Amazon's x-ray feature tells us that Annie Wershing's depiction of the Borg Queen is telling Picard to look up. Oh good, it's the Borg. Yeah, take- I'm not going to drag that one out. Anyway, it's a spoiler alert here. If you haven't figured out the Borg were a part of this, then you're part of the target demographic, so congratulations on having a skull as an ideal home, which is very quiet and roomy. Then we've got the titles, 90 seconds of needless CGI crap that you need a degree in chemical engineering to figure out. Back to reality, such as it is, and on Earth, 48 hours later, some radio tunes in, because radios are all the rage in the 25th century apparently, to a song called Time Is On My Side, Picard's new cybernetic body having the caveat that it isn't made to be everlasting, seemingly ignored or forgotten by who have chose the score. Picard is about mortality. Time is not on anyone's side. In fact, we are all fucked. Anyway, some human slash alien labour is taking place that can be done by the steampunk fart machines that are beaming up grapes in the vine. A label appears on a wine bottle with no visible tool to do so. Picard looks at Laris with an unreadable expression, probably because his face is so withered. And Laris looks back with a Man, am I going to toast your buns good look? And honestly, I dig that, but for entirely the wrong reasons. Later on that evening, Picard and Laris exchanged drinking salutations and casual racism with the aid of oversized wine glasses. Picard says he likes confirmation of hard work well done, despite the fact we saw grapes being transported, moved about by floating contraptions, labels appear out of nowhere, and most people present were just pointing at things, really. Laris is all about arranged marriages not being that bad, which is... Very Star Trek, I'm sure you'll agree. And then drops the bombshell that she wants to commit psychological transference by being Picard's new girlfriend. Picard looks this hot goth space milf square in the big beautiful Romulan eyes and says no, because last season's prattling on about the fragility of life hasn't really taught him anything. Big props to Laris, though, for taking it like a champ. And she exits stage left. After that, we are treated to a flashback. Picard switches between an OAP and a Dickensian child, and there's Broken Glass and Oedipus Complex, and frankly, a load of other crap that I don't really care about. Picard is honestly too old for childhood trauma. If he doesn't like a memory, he can just delete it, or just get blackout drunk like Raffi might, because when you own a vineyard, you're kind of expected to do that. Then we've got a zoomy-out shot of Earth. London is tiny. Manchester, massive. And France appears to basically have been cut in half. It's the future, so i kind of let that one go, at least. Moving ever out of we arrive at the Akira-class ship Avalon, being hoofed over like a wheelie bin in a storm by a spatial anomaly that looks like when you pick your nose and get a couple of crusty bits stuck together glued with snot. Avalon calls home, saying they've detected a spatial anomaly, and asks for advice, because, I, I don't know, how about fucking scanning it? It's, it's your remit, a.k.a. your job, isn't it? Starships are supposed to do that, right? Next scene, Picard's lost a book. Remember this, it'll be important later. Laris is effectively his mum and makes an Earl Grey cold quip that I honestly rather enjoyed. Laris says Picard has, has basically fucked up their relationship and says she's too old for awkward. At Starfleet Academy, Jean-Luc projects his current situation onto others with the same charm that Lucifer did in Lucifer, but with Picard in Picard, Picard does so with none of the charm. On the stage, there are some nice nods with the use of flags representing Vulcan, Bajor, the Ferengi Alliance, the Klingon Empire, and what I presume to be the Romulan Republic. Raffi's on the stage too, but only likely because she's Picard's chum. She doesn't really have any function there. It's, I mean, it's nice being a failure at work but with friends in high places to cover for you, or maybe just being an alcoholic with a friend who owns a vineyard, for that matter, it all makes about the same amount of sense. Speaking of chums, Picard picks out his buddy Elnor because he's the first Romulan in the Academy, and then he just kind of glumly farts out that he's the last Picard, and he laments this, even though he could quite rapidly end this end of line problem by shacking up with Laris. You see, see end of line. You see what I did there? end, end of line. This is. It's, it's Never mind. I wonder if his cybernetic dicks did one or to. Anyway, next up, we've got La Serena, or however it's pronounced. Seven's basically having a ride, Jack. The holographic Rios speaks Spanish, because fuck you, universal translator, and we cannot, under any circumstances, forget he's representing modern-day immigration issues in America. At least Sulu, in the original series, had the decency to fence Topless as a nod to French culture and deepening the character to know more about his home planet beyond the borders of his own country. Anyway, shit's going down outside the ship. Some pirate wants to see Seven's, quote, ugly borg face. Clearly you didn't get the memo about Seven originally being hired to boost ratings in Voyager by way of sex appeal. Besides, Jerry Ryan aged very well without resorting to too many of the I-can-make-your-face-look-like-a-plank-of-balsa-wood horrors offered by modern plastic surgery. The comment does seem to bother her a little and, and honestly, kudos to Ryan for the little eye flourish like a vein of head's gonna burst due to the ignorance of others because trust me, I can relate. Seven shouts out to her intruders. The medical supplies she's holding are the property of the shittily named Fenris Rangers which may actually be a knot of furries even though the crates have Starfleet-style markings on them. Seven ducks weapons fire until Holo Rios is summoned to yawn disparagingly at ineffectually being shot by idiot pirate number three and it's an old trope and honestly, it's not needed. Holo Rios asks for the gloves to be taken off while idiot... Pirate 3 repeats behaviour that yields no result whatsoever, and 7 smacks some guy around. At the very point Rios is very loudly announced to become dangerous, Idiot Pirate 3 stops shooting Holorios and just points her gun somewhere else instead. Because that's clever. Rios chucks number three into Seven's line of sight, and then he just kind of stands idly by in the corner, not following up his attack. And he just patiently allows number three to shoot Seven as she rushes three. A predictable fall-off-a-mezzanine bit follows, and Rios looks like Combat Jesus. And then he speaks more Spanish, because while the transporter works well enough for Seven to transport the unconscious intruders off somewhere, the Universal Translator is controlled by Holorios, who wants to speak Spanish for no readily apparent reason other than contemporary politics. In a shout out to the earlier ugly Borg face comment, Holorios needlessly says humans react with fear and prejudice to Seven's implants, and then, to prove the point he's brought up, caresses said implants. I mean... Who the fuck asked him? Wanna just go out and find what Balana Torres is up to and rub a fucking lottery ticket against her forehead, you insensitive cum rag. Seven offers to reprogram Holorios of being a dick. In response, Rios points out the aforementioned shit going down outside features hawking radiation. Quick aside to say that I like that reference to real science. It reminds me of The Expanse, which is good TV, unlike this. Anyway, it's the spatial anomaly that swatted the Avalon aside and now resembles a giant green space cervix. Shouldn't Avalon still be there? And, you know, stopping pirates attacking La Serena? Avalon was undamaged enough to call for advice instead of immediately leaving, so either Starfleet told Avalon to leave and not carry out Starfleet's standing orders of discovery, or the writers overlooked something, either explanation she's stupid as far as I'm concerned, and it's a bad job by the writers. The soundtrack ramps up, some violinist playing high notes on the influence of cocaine, this implied. Is horror Seven's personal horror of assimilation because it's so obviously boring. I'd wager boring odds but I could do another 20 quid scene 14 opens on a planet with no oceans defended by space flowers from last season and Soji offers a toast in some classic Picard style diplomacy that's tarmished by having the I need to be dumbed down for teenagers treatment also the universal translator's fucked again I mean why bother with it at this point Girati, meanwhile, is alone at the bar, getting simultaneously sloshed and utterly ignored by the barman, when handsome Delton, that's in the credits, it's not my description, strolls up and gets his Mac Daddy on. Girati rebuffs his charm with the usual hyper-self-awareness exhibited only by those of impeccable intelligence. She also mentions the fucking stupid homicide plot from last season, because she just really needs to get laid. Rios, the real one, comes in in English, which is a big hooray, because it means that the character has slightly more depth. Anyway, Girati offs up some casual racism to Soju, who's been eavesdropping, as per Jurati's request. Jurati beams up, slithers onto the bridge of a ship drunk the same way Rafi would have done a few years ago for an update on the situation. Rios does command things while ignoring Girati, and chomps on a cigar because smoking is still cool in the future. And then he catches the lighter tossed to him by his first officer because his first officer has a lighter. His first officer has a lighter and throws it to the captain. Because Star Trek is now cowboy shit, apparently. Rios asks Tactical for offensive and defensive reports because he doesn't want to arrive at a spatial anomaly without the ability to fucking shoot it. At this point, we only know it's a hole emitting tachyons and hawking radiation. For the uninitiated, this means faster than light and wormholes. It kind of makes sense for Rios to be cautious about it, but saying he doesn't want to get there without the ability to shoot stuff is pretty gung-ho. I mean, it's about as gung-ho as your XO chucking light as you on the bridge. Clearly, this is not a ship that adheres to regulations, or common sense, for that matter. Rios said he could use Giordi's brains to figure out the subspace anomaly, because now it's a subspace anomaly. Even though her specialism is actually in cybernetics, and then he just goes on comm the ship's warpfield specialist to poke his ass hernia. Alright, I made that last bit up, but it still makes more sense than the all-scientists-know-all-science narrative pushed by popular entertainment. Alison Pill's depiction of being drunk is really on point, and she's really getting the whole my muscles are incredibly relaxed, I feel warm and don't give a fuck" vibe, while Santiago Cabrera's Rios seems a bit stressed by being asked to go stare into the abyss. Honestly, investigating the unknown should get a Starfleet officer's dick hard. Acting put out by exploration is very undoed. Rios commands in Spanish, of course in Spanish, for the ship to proceed, and then he lights his cigar while Gerardi's vagina visibly moistens at just how fucking manly Rios is supposed to be. That was sarcasm. At this point, I want to implant an idea in your head. Would we see so much of Rios's culture bleed into his career if he was Australian, for instance? Instead of smoking, he could drink cans of beer. Instead of Spanish, he could swear an awful lot. Personally, I don't really see it, but as balancing one nation's stereotypical vices with another's, I think it's an even comparison. But would it make it into Star Trek? No, of course not. Because it's stupid having a beer-swelling potty mouth commanding a starship, and so is a cigar-chomping captain and his lighter-tossing XO. You see the parallel I'm drawing? Anyway, Jurati comments on the ship's legacy, because, as we're about to see, the ship is called the Stargazer. The Stargazer's legacy was being salvaged by a mad daemon and used to torture Picard for killing a daemon's kid, so I've got absolutely no idea why she's mentioned it, or even how it's relevant, if I'm honest. Anyway, rather than append the Stargazer's old registry with a letter like the Enterprise, they just shove an eight in front of the old one, which is a dreadful try-hard move, if you ask me. Stargazer's warp drive powers up far too slowly for the ship to be of any practical use, but it allows her to see that it's pretty much half sovereign class and retains the four-nacelle layout of the old Stargazer. I get the impression this attention's detail is supposed to impress old-school Trekkies, and I can assure you, it doesn't. Back at Starfleet Academy, a woman who Amazon doesn't credit, doles out names of starships designed to stop intelligent people like you and me from hating this series. Raffy counsels Picard, and I say counsel, but what I really mean is stick her giant fucking beak into someone else's business. Picard tells her to fuck off, so Raffy bitches about how she hates someone she loves, because that's what Raffy is. She's a dichotomy. She hates those she loves. She managed to fuck up her life in paradise, because this character is so deep, and I can totally relate. No, I can't, because I'm not fucking stupid. Raffi bitches and whines she's different from Picard, because Picard is happy to travel the stars. Picard tells Elmore to live a little. This makes sense because Picard's academy days involved pissing off a Nausicaan and getting stabbed through the heart, a move that was ultimately necessary to ensure Picard didn't play it too safe throughout his career, leading to his rise to captaincy, so, as advice goes, it's pretty good. He also hands Helmore a book by Spock and quotes said book by saying, Exhilaration enhances the absorption of knowledge. Except exhilaration is an emotion. And Spock didn't really do emotions that much. I mean, only when he was mentally ill or wanting to get laid. And either way, there wasn't much to learn from that experience, because I kind of understand that he knows where the alien clitoris is, namely near Kirk's head. And this is an obvious mistake made by writers who don't know basic Trek. And now you know why diehard fans hate this trash. Raffy strolls back from somewhere because I didn't notice her leave and I don't really get Give two shits about this impossible character and we see an Orion woman in the background now here's an idea for you all right remember how in Enterprise we were shown that some Orion women make men their slaves by emitting pheromones how about we learn a bit more than that how about an episode where an Orion officer develops a condition where she's spitting out pheromones left, right and centre? The episode could cover the moral question of what it takes for a man not to behave like a fucking animal, the sanctity of the female body and the moral decision of having her body modified versus inoculating all the straight men. Personally, I think it's relevant Golden. it took me two minutes to think of and looking at the scene pause on my left monitor, I think it beats anything with Raffy in it. Turns out Raffi's keeping on more close, kind of like her son, because she disposed of her biological child to do drugs and shit, because this character's just so fucking complex. (laughs) Remember at the beginning of the scene, Raffi says she's different because Picard is happy to travel the stars? Raffi then fucks off to the Excelsior to travel the stars. So fuck you, Raffi. Back at the Borg cervix, Rios lights his lighter, and the ship's automatic fire suppression system doesn't work—or at least it not stop, because oxygen is actually a fairly valuable commodity in space. After looking like he's taking an awkward shit, he asks an officer what he's looking at, because that's very professional. Only minor tachyon levels, so none of the aforementioned Hawking radiation. So either it's changed somehow, or the writers are shit. Also, no mention of the Avalon, so I'm going to say the writers are shit. Gerati quips about what counts as stable while looking at a man who is literally absent-mindedly playing with fire like a teenager. And honestly, I think I'm falling in love with Gerati. Seven hails Stargazer because, of course, they're in the same location. And, you know, she's got nothing better to do than deliver medical supplies. With how much this show harps on about death, you'd expect Preservation of Life to rank higher than a giant green-bordered hole that she allegedly knows nothing about. But whatever. re Seven for dinging his sick whip to which Seven claps back that things that are damaged look good. See, yeah, I <laughs> see what you did there. Yeah, people with irredeemable psychological trauma can be hot, especially on Pornhub, but likely they're not easy to live with unless they've had extensive therapy. So scrub that idea. Jurassic, in a typical adorable toddler-like fashion, says, Hi, Seven, which prompts the executives at CBS to detract from the moment we see a relatable character do something relatable and make the cervix screech like fuck instead. A pejoran officer runs the screech through the translator even though it's just a fucking screeching sound and it doesn't resemble a language at all. Alison Pill puts on her Jurati as a hangover hat and very indiscreetly pokes fun at set designers for making the bridge like a fucking child's climbing frame. She then does this deadpan flourish at Rios in a way that makes him want to run the risk of being her second murder victim and then asks permission to poke floaty-in-the-air fake buttons. In response, Rios just kind of stands there with his dick in his hand and plays the browbeaten husband. Jurati manages to outsmart the Universal Translator, which isn't actually that hard considering how much basic Spanish goes untranslatable this vessel, and recognises that the Screech is not one language but many and all of them asking for help. From Picard. We all know it's Borg, and while it's nice the writers didn't give it away to the dimmer members of the audience by having the translator churn out Help us, Lercutus, it's still annoying to have the writers dangle a green thing and a chorus of voices and expect us to think it's anything other than the Borg. Personally, I've been insulted at this point. Scene 18, Picard goes to see Guinan for some further counsel. I mean, thinking about it, he spent seven years on a starship with a counsellor and Guinan, so I think it's, it's very difficult to believe he has any issues left to deal with. Guinan says she's going to need some tea. Earl Grey, piping hot. Sorry, Guinan, but Laris beat you to that reference. Now stop it. It's fucking lazy. Piping hot. <sighs> Picard moans he's so damaged he's going to take a page out of Raffi's book and destroy his brand new android liver, and then corrects Guinan on his job title before presenting her with a bottle of Chateau Picard, which is a nice touch, as Chateau Picard is so good that people used to chuck it at starships before Star Trek became shit. Guinan notes that humans don't like to be reminded of their mortality, and at this point I'm surprised that she didn't just mutter, you know this shit show got a second season, I'll never know, under her breath. Guinan brings out the hooch, and Picard unloads his emotional baggage while I sit here and frankly not give a shit. Guinan says the answers Picard seeks are not among the stars and never have been which kind of negates his entire career and hobby as a space archaeologist and she infers that they should just get shit-faced instead and frankly I agree it does an awful lot to numb the pain it must be said back at home Jean-Luc is chillaxing in a black polo neck black jeans and black boots so he's obviously going to go through a goth phase where he's planning to steal some dilithium before someone in Star Trek Discovery feels sad and telepathically blows it all up Admiral Whitley swings in and drops the anvil Borg's cervix caused a massive spike in Adalaski temporal radio now, while I really like the naming convention of time-traveling radiation, this hasn't been mentioned before, when really, after having three ships sit next to it, the Stargazer, La Serena and Avalon, this should have come to light. Now, look, 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 look. I know you've got to develop the plot slowly, except in Star Trek. Because with instruments powerful enough to scan realms the average adult can't conceive of, you basically know everything until something changes. A static cervix that isn't changing will tell you everything you need to know at once. Kind of like how things only change when acted upon by an external force. I mean, some bloke said that 900 years before Picard was born, but then he suffered head trauma because of apples, so what does he know? Turns out the anomaly is calling for Picard by name and wants to fill out a Federation application form. This has Whitley all gooey on the inside because this unknown species, ha ha. Uh can open holes in space-time, because we've never seen the Federation do that before, ever. I mean, except when they want to go to fluidic space after ignoring parables about scorpions, but we'll gloss over that, because it's inconvenient. Whitley holds out a con badge to Picard, instead of tossing it to him like a cigar lighter, to which he immediately fucks off to space, even though Guynan said the answers he seeks aren't in space. Honestly, this is getting a bit like Frasier at this point. I really don't think the question of who the fuck is calling my name in the middle of space can be answered by not going to space and instead staying home and getting freaky with Laris, so Guinan is also full of shit. Having said that, Laris is grounded, confident, and when she's promising to fuck Picard harder than her own dead husband, I'd say Guinan might be right to turn to stay at home for some Amazon Prime and chill. Laris comes home just in time to see Picard leave. Her face doesn't really give that much away, and they should have filmed the shot where we could see all of her body and how her body language changes as she realises Picard is leaving once more and maybe to have her smaller in the frame and emphasise the loneliness and emptiness of Sanctuary Picard. I what the fuck do I know? I've only watched this franchise for 30-odd years. Back at the Borg cervix once more, and Picard's shuttle does some pretty dangerous joyriding around the Stargazer, considering the vast amount of starships we see a bit later. The use of a shuttle seems stupid when transporting something as important as an android admiral and Chancellor of the Academy. Remember the last time you saw an admiral overly concerned with aging being transported in Star Trek? He had a fucking massive room on the Enterprise, some gnarly pills, and he fucked like a piston engine. Alright, he died, but at least he wasn't stuck in a tiny box, fiddling with his dick and cry-maxing about Romulan milfs. Picard steps out of Stargazer's shuttle bay to be greeted by Seven, who comments that Picard is well recognised, because he's Chancellor of the Academy. Picard, in turn, says that his first command was the Stargazer, because I ended well, and then he rapidly amends the statement by remarking that it was another Stargazer, because he's totally not senile. Furthermore, he says Stargazer's quite a ship, which is something everyone aboard should really agree with, except the poor bastard whose job it is to buff and polish the needlessly shiny floors. Seven pissily drops an anvil that Stargazer's spangly new and has Borg-derived components aboard, and then goes on to make the conversation all about herself. I mean, should she really reprogram Holorios not to act as counsellor? She obviously needs a lot of help. Turbo lift. gratuitous shot of the old stargazer acudogram. It's the only highlight there is in this scene. Up on the bridge, Rios greets Picard very warmly while ignoring Seven, which makes a lot of sense considering how she'll likely just end up moaning about herself. Picard gushes a bit more about the ship and mentions ship refits and body. Except the stargazer's new. Picard's body is new. There were no refits involved, so shut up, Picard. Jurati's also there and makes the city do less shit, but the CBS's won't. They stop the camera focusing on the only woman who isn't a festival of emotional agony, so manly as fuck Rios can ask the tactical officer to enhance the screen. I mean, shouldn't he ask the science station to do that? Is Stargazer really looking at this thing down the barrel of a phaser rifle? I mean, it's nice to see science has absolutely no place on a spaceship. Anyway, ENHANCE! And the enhancement brings up... nothing. Of, no, none of the characters nod at or comment on the little pop-up on the view screen. so it's obviously a waste of everyone's time. Well done. Picard then hails the anomaly using his own name. First time round, unless it's no response, because everyone on the other side is probably asleep, the same way the elderly men doze off all the time. Like this one. Then halfway through the repetition, the anomaly responds by saying, Picard, the same way you or I may sign relief after taking a particularly colossal shit. The writers timed this so the name pronounced begins from human question mark lips and is finished by the book a reference to being locutus a reference to the aim of locutus as a character or perhaps how he started life as a human but is now an android i don't know i don't watch star trek for the cryptic self-references that writers use to cover up the fact they've got absolutely no new ideas whatsoever and some alarms go off and the screens go crazy and kirk's orders to back off after being fired upon in star trek 6 is pleasingly imitated by rios who then fucks up that redeeming act by putting a cigar in his mouth maybe he's got an oral fixation I mean, Picard's lonely and likes space, Rios likes thick cylindrical objects in his mouth, and this show deals with homosexuality as a theme, so come on CBS! Some CGI shockwave bounces the crew around the ship's bridge into precariously placed metal railings everywhere because whoever programmed the Universal Translator is also in charge of inertial dampeners, so talk about fading upwards. Outside the bulk cervix gives birth to something I originally thought was a black Armageddon battleship from EVE Online. But then I thought that was far too far-fetched, even for this show. But don't mention it to writers anyway, it's an original idea and they might steal it. Then I thought it looked a bit like H.R. Giger's Alien. I mean, looking closer while it's paused, I can clearly see an inner labia and an outer labia. Ah, oh, Christ. Yeah, Seven then confirms the new kid on the block is a Borg ship, because no one ever saw that one coming. CGI shot outside, and a Federation fleet forms up. In the first season, there are about two ship classes. Here, there are more, so I'm glad the CGI directors took their head out their arse and let their artists do their job. Raffy hails stargazer from Excelsior to let them know Raffy's got their back. twitch Rios lies through his teeth by saying it's good to know she's around because when faced with a possible protracted military invasion by your deadliest enemy, you really want a fucking crackhead watching your back. Seven's in the background, but she blanks her girlfriend because their relationship is a fucking train wreck. Most relationships I'm aware of, lesbians included, are harmonious because harmony is required for a relationship to work. Maybe the writers are all single or just want to depict lesbians as toxic. Either way, it's a bad look and it's very unTrek panning outward it seems like we're in the conference room the nice touches of little gold starships on the wall are quickly erased by manly as cowboy spurs in your state Rios because he rapidly shits out his spine and dumps everything on picard i mean if raffy has got his back and i can't blame him for evacuating his vertebrae through his arse i'm just surprised she's not on her knees behind him grinding his spinal column into something she can snort i hate raffi does it show So, rather than stay on the bridge and negotiate or figure out what's going on in true Starfleet fashion, the senior staff will leave the junior officers on the bridge with their XO in charge, whose only real job is to toss lighters around. It's not clever. It's supposed to be a reference to the original conference held in the episode Q Who. Except a poor one, and incredibly, incredibly unoriginal. Rios states the perfectly bloody obvious by saying that if they don't act, then the Borg will. Spoiler alert, that's exactly what happens. So, why are they all doing nothing then? Like, by their own logic, that's just asking for trouble. Because they're idiots. Speaking of idiots, Picard informs everyone in a devil-may-care attitude he has absolutely no clue what to do, because seven or so years of captaining a Federation starship has taught him nothing. Being assimilated by the very species dangling their balls in his face has taught him absolutely nothing. Well, how about this genius? How about you put the pieces together? Let me help you. Right, so this big fucking hole appears exhibiting properties to do with crossing vast interstellar distances, faster-than-light particles, and fucking time travel. It calls your name and then does nothing until you say your name to it. At that point, a giant Borg vessel pops through and squats in space while you all cry about how indecision will be the end of you while being indecisive. What initiated the change from cervix to giant space vagina that gave birth to a Borg ship? It's Picard, of course. And what is Picard? He's a diplomat. He talked. He saved countless lives by just talking. Diplomacy is the absolute core of Trek and Picard as a character. And the Borg are out there asking for help. So how about you go and fucking talk to him? Now I've rendered this scene completely redundant, we can skip it. We'd even skip more of Seven making this entire situation about her, because that's all she ever really does, and you need to thank me for that later. Back on the bridge, the Borg have grown weary, Picard not doing the totally fucking obvious, just like Rios said they will, and then they say there's no more time, which is a pretty huge joke when you think the ship can travel through time at will. It's kind of like the grandfather paradox. Technically, you can go back in time and fuck your nan whenever you want. You could, in fact, do it several times throughout your life and give your nan a gangbang of you. A nanbang, I suppose you could call it. Time travel's great like that. Anyway, Snoop, Borgy Borg want to negotiate with Picard alone and offer their queen. Rios denies their request but forgets to tell the Borg that he's denying their request and instead tells the fleet to raise shields because the fleet was lackadaisical about possible assimilation and was just really sitting around shields down waiting to be turned into drones. From the Borg's perspective, they ask for help. They offer to send over their queen, which was actually a highly valuable asset. And in response, everyone just gets all defensive. I mean, if you were the Borg, you'd feel a bit rejected at that. Thankfully, unlike Seven, the board don't show emotion so visibly or make everything me-me-me-me-me all the time, so he's spared seeing things from the other side. It's important to note that seeing things from the other side is, again, a core facet of Trek, and the first dick move in this situation is made by the Federation. Bad Star Trek. Bad. The Borg ship's labia parts like Moses is waving a space dildo at it, while the rest of the ship grows several spines. Oddly, Rios isn't taking notes on developing a new backbone to replace the one he just shat out two minutes ago, and listens to the First Officer report about the incoming queen. Seven pushes Rios to fire because she's got daddy issues, but instead he calls up the Borg and tells them to stop transport, or Stargazer and her buddies will open fire. In response, the Borg ship fires Stargazer. remember Starfleet's edict of don't fire unless fired upon first. Rios forgot that, and instead he orders the crew to prepare for boarding and drums his fingers on Picard's bald head while waiting a moment for the shields to drop and not stopping the Borg from doing... exactly that. Which is dumb. Rios clearly does not have the experience or balls to Captain of Starship. He's effectively all mouth and no trousers. And honestly, he can just fuck right off. A moment later, what appears to be a cross between a chess piece and a marital aid materialises on the bridge. Everyone looks grimly determined except Gerati who does what anyone else would do and makes a quip about the Queen's new clothes. Queenie then states that they wish for peace but first she desires some refreshment for her exertions, grows a couple of extensions that wouldn't look out of place in an animated Japanese sex film and plunges them into nearby consoles. Seven pulls a face like Rios to shat out a dead cat and fires first. Seven has issues with the Borgon Authority. Did you know that? because I didn't. Predictably, the Queen is shielded and defends herself by breaking the spine of the First Officer on one of those shittily placed rails I mentioned earlier. The resulting backflip and neat landing of the First Officer flat on his back without cracking his skull open causes several nanoprobes on the Queen's arse to nod to one another and raise nanoscopic cards with numbers on them. I marks for athleticism, it seems. No wonder he was Rios's chief tosser. Phase of fire continues on the bridge by the extras, because everyone who's contractually obliged to be there is standing around looking at everything instead of taking action. Queenie neatly sends little green pulses to nearly everyone firing at her before Rios orders everyone to cease fire. And they ignore him, so he orders them again. And they disobey him, because from what we've seen of his command style, they respect him about as much as you might respect a zit on your ass. Seven dashes to an extra on an errand of mercy and barks that Queenie's stunning people, not killing them. Rios shouts for his crew to stop firing for the third time, and as you might have guessed, this order is about as effective as sex education in the American Deep South. Queenie leet hacksaws the ship while Seven says she's assimilating it. No. Seven. You had four seasons on Voyager to learn what that word means and this is this is not assimilation. geralti reports the ship's being used as a hub to hack the entire fleet which is now dangling in space uselessly like a bunch of Christmas decorations. Rios fully embraces his crew's insubordination and orders the fleet to fire except the order isn't transmitted because of all the hacking going on and Picard's just fucking crawling around on the floor looking for his dignity. Really. He is actually crawling on the fucking floor. Seven points out the perfectly bloody obvious so he says fuck this for a game of skills and starts to self-destruct. Sequence. computer's humor subrouting kicks in as the ship starts playing a French song with lyrics that roughly translate as I regret nothing, which is nice to see the ship can laugh in the face of death. Now if only everyone else would, this show wouldn't be so bloody maudlin. And Picard stands up to Queenie as informed in a uniquely feminine way to look up. He looks at Queenie instead, and the USS plot device explodes. But all is not over. Picard, in his usual fuck-you-I'm-too-famous-to-die style, wakes up in the conservatory of Chateau Picard, fully clothed and looking a little bit worse for wear. He clambers up some furniture and notices that his common is ludicrously huge before staring at some smashed glass that gives us the mirror-broken vibe we've been expecting since the first trailer slapped us in the arse last year. Stumbling around uselessly, Picard departs to his study where we're treated to a sword on the display stand. You see, in Star Trek, this is how you know you're in bad company. Only bad people keep weapons on display. Except Worf and Martok. But otherwise, only bad people do that. Bimbling around further, he's buys a portrait of himself except it's in the style of the movie era uniform in black and it looks badass by the way which is a miserable contrast to the Picard we're forced to endure today now fully in command of his limbs hopefully his bowels too Picard shouts for Laris but is instead greeted by a synthetic called Harvey who offers him his morning beverage on the veranda before dropping the anvil the sky is clear but ultimately fucked Picard asks for Laris once more because he can't figure out he's supposed to be fucking dead and offered a translation of what the name means but nothing else despairingly he asks no one in particular and by that I mean you, the viewer, what is going on, only to be answered by Q's voice. My Star Trek boner is immediately slapped down by the music, as it has more screechy violins that imply horror and stroke or malevolence, and Q is neither of those. Stop it. It's also important to note Q has greeted Picard upon death before so this is not exactly original. Harvey has meanwhile been sent to oblivion by Q, who looks about as youthful as you'd expect from a being that doesn't age, but out of deference to Picard, he ages up pretty rapidly, so the CGI team don't have to deepfake John Delancey with John Delancey for every scene he's in. The resulting Q flash has had the overall sound replaced with a deep boom, and the visuals given way more punch, and overall I really quite like it. Previously, Picard would be a little bit annoyed or frustrated to see Q, but instead he just gets pissy, and in response Q steps up to him, reminding us that John Delancey has lost absolutely none of his screen presence, and that he has, in fact, deepened his gravitas considerably, which is nice. Q asks Picard what the last thing he said to him was and answers his own question with the trial never ends and then goes on to explain that Picard has been prattling on about second chances calling back to the boring speech about second chances the academy earlier on which is pretty rich considering it could be condensed into you lot don't get second chances but I do lol with this in mind the cameraman's ankle clearly fails him but as he decides to style it out he tilts the camera in a fucked up manner instead as Q welcomes Picard to the very end of the road not taken with a nice little smile then we get the credits although personally if I was involved in this production I'd like both myself and IMDB to forget it as soon as humanly possible. Honestly, being proud of making this trash is like when a baby giggles as it pisses in your face.